that Jesus might be glorified. Amen. All right, you may be seated. So last time we were together, we took a tour through the Psalms, asking the question, what will Christ's kingdom, this kingdom that Paul is talking about, 1 Corinthians 15, what will this kingdom look like? Will this world grow worse and worse under his reign? Or will righteousness and peace increase such that all nations eventually turn to him? And I would argue that the Psalms um, answered in the positive. Today, we're going to turn to the prophets, and we're going to ask essentially the same question. What will Christ's kingdom look like on earth before the end comes? Now, Jonathan Edwards, one of my favorite theologians, he summed up the prophets um, in, in four succinct statements. Consider these. Number one, in this kingdom, the knowledge of the Lord and his word will fill the whole world. It's one of the promises of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 34, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Second statement, in this kingdom, Christ church will be the object of love and um, care among the nations. Isaiah 49, 23, the prophet says, kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. Statement number three, in this kingdom, war will cease and universal peace will abound. Isaiah 11.4, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And then the fourth statement is that in this kingdom, temporal prosperity and health will abound such that the world has never seen. Zechariah 8.12, for there shall be a sowing of peace, the vine shall give its fruit, the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due. What I would encourage all of us to do this morning is, again, let's just visit this country together and then test these things against the word. So our big idea is that the prophets tell a story of a great future kingdom where the mountain of the Lord fills the earth and the nations learn war no more. So let's look first at our doctrine this morning. I just want to make a defense very quickly for why we are leaving 1 Corinthians 15 to go to look at these things in the prophets. Because someone might ask, wait a second, I thought we preach verse by verse here. I thought we teach chapter by chapter. Isn't this a topical sermon? And I would say, no, it's not. Um, We're asking the question, what kind of a kingdom will Christ deliver to the Father? That's the, the subject matter of verse 24. And the answer is not clear in this passage um, as it is in other places of Scripture. Uh, The Westminster Confession of Faith says this in chapter 1, paragraph 9, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the full and true sense of any Scripture, it must be searched and known by other places that speak it more clearly. So that's what we're doing. 
We're going to other places to try to figure out what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 15. And so we arrive at our doctrine this morning. The prophets tell a story of a great future kingdom where the mount of the Lord will fill the earth and the nations will learn war no more. Let's first turn to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. Now, at this point in redemptive history, the Jews were exposed to all the curses of Deuteronomy 28. Their temple had already been burned to the ground. Jerusalem was destroyed. And here they were in captivity in Babylon. And yet God, in his infinite grace and love, holds out this hope to this disobedient people. He he gives them this this vision through this dream given to the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar, this vision of hope. In verses 31 through 33, we discover that Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of a great image. He had a head of gold. He had a chest and arms of silver. He had stomach and thighs of bronze. He had legs of iron, and he had feet mixed with iron and clay. What we see is that Daniel interprets this dream as four global empires. And we know from history, these are the empires of Babylon, uh, Media, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And these kingdoms were absolutely frightening and absolutely terrifying because when they reigned, they, di- they, they just um, destroyed everything in their path. But something happens. In this dream, look at verse 34. Daniel is telling Nebuchadnezzar this. As you looked at this image, a stone was cut out by no human hand. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Now, ask yourself, what is this stone cut by no human hand? the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody agrees with that. This stone that's toppling this statue, that's making it fall down to the ground, is the Lord Jesus. Where does he strike the statue at? Strikes it in the feet, in the feet of iron and clay. That's the Roman Empire. Um, It's during the Roman Empire when Christ came into the world. It was then when he dealt this death blow to the empire's of the earth. Look at verse 35. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the earth. Now, when did this stone start growing into a mountain? Immediately. It struck the feet, it crushed the statue, and that stone immediately began growing into a mountain, filling the whole world. And what the prophet says here is that this This new kingdom will never give away to another kingdom. Look at verse 44. 
In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. In the days of those kings, in those days, this new kingdom will never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another. It shall break into pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. It's what's been happening since the first century. And if someone says, well, well then, if this mountain is growing and growing and growing, then how do we interpret all of the calamity and the war and the tumult in um, the world today? Well, as the mountain is growing, what is it doing? It's breaking into pieces all of these other kingdoms. It's shaking those things that can be removed so that those things that cannot be removed would remain. I mean... Here's the encouraging thing about this prophecy. If Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome are no more because Christ came into the world and crushed them, how can any other nation stand in opposition to this king? Uh, Look at the end of verse 45. A great God has made known to the king what shall happen after this. This dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. So that's the setup. Now let's look at other, the other prophets which describe what this great mountain is going to look like. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah just got done starting to speak about judgment against um, the coming Babylonian captivity in chapter 1, and then he, he turns and offers this hope that's on the other side. Verse 1, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days. I'll stop there for a moment. What are these latter days? Well, that's the... The the latter days began at the second coming of Christ. Peter, in his first sermon at Pentecost, proclaimed that when Jesus rose again from the dead, the last days began. Acts chapter 2, verse 17. So we are in these last days that Isaiah is referring to right now. Look at verse 2. Continuing. The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. What is this mountain? This is the mountain of Daniel chapter 2. It's the kingdom of Christ. It's the church where Christ is seated as king. That's what Hebrews 12, 22 says, that when we were born again, we have now come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. How will the world respond to this mountain? We'll look at the end of verse 2. All the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So here's the question. What are these nations that are in view here? What does the prophet mean by these nations? Because some will say that these nations here, 
they don't mean nations as we know them, like America or China or Russia, but rather they say that Isaiah is using the term nations to, to simply describe the small subgroup of Christians who are from each of these nations. So it's not the nations per se, it's the Chinese or the Chinese Christians and the American Christians who are flowing to this mountain. The small subgroup of believers. But beloved, that won't do. Because that is not how Isaiah uses the word nations throughout this entire book. Isaiah, like all the other prophets, um, is addressing the nations, meaning those, those communities of people that are defined by uh, set territories and boundaries, and they possess independent governments. That's how the word is used. So, so the, the most natural interpretation is to assume that Isaiah means the same thing he does elsewhere, namely that nations means nations. So what does Isaiah prophesy that these nations will do? Verse 2, they will flow like a stream to Christ. They will beckon. They'll say, come, let us worship at the house of the Lord, the mountain of the Lord. Verse 3, that we would walk in his ways, that we would know his righteous law. Continuing in verse 4, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. Now, the end of verse 4 is so fantastic and so unbelievable that some have come to this text and say, this has to be talking about heaven here. This cannot be talking about history. But here's the problem. In this verse, we see that there are still disputes that exist on earth, that Christ must correct through his word. There's no disputes in heaven. The curse, this is envisioning a time where the curse is still present. Yet, in spite of this, a universal peace is prophesied. Look at verse 4, continuing at the end of it. The nations will come, and what will happen? They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war any more. Now, I, I, I don't want to overspeak the case. Clearly, this passage started to be fulfilled when Jesus first came into the world. Um, the Jews and the Gentiles had 2,000 years of enmity and hatred and war against each other. But when they came to Christ, and Ephesians chapter 2 teaches this, the warfare ended. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14, he himself, Christ, is our peace. He has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one. And he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So this passage here immediately started being fulfilled in the first century when Jews and Gentiles were able to come together in Christ um, in the same body. But Isaiah is looking forward to a time when not just individual Jews and individual Gentiles would lay down their enmity, but he's looking forward to a time when this will be the norm for nations. When nations will no longer build weapons, instead they will build tools that will advance culture and advance human flourishing. All wars are going to cease. Well, how can that be? 
not through human effort, not through just bettering ourselves, not by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. This will be because Jesus is exercising his dominion over the world. Let's turn to our next passage, Isaiah chapter 9. Now here in verse 1, Isaiah is speaking of the former times of Israel's trouble, the gloom and the anguish. But then halfway through verse 1, he says, but in the latter time, so it's the same language as Isaiah 2, pointing to the last days after Christ rose. Verse 2, in that time, the people who walked in darkness, it's referring to the Gentiles, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. So Isaiah is telling us that when Christ comes into the world, the Gentiles will be grafted into true Israel. They'll be one body. And as a result, they're going to reap a harvest of joy, verse 3. Their burden will be broken, verse 4. And they're going to learn war no more. Look at verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Soldiers' uniforms will be cast into the fire because there will no longer be a need for them. How can the prophet promise that? Look at verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Now, I think that this is perhaps the most famous Christmas passage, isn't it? But how often do we actually miss the promise that's here? This is a really good verse to put on a Christmas card. But how often we miss what's actually promised here? Notice it doesn't say that Christ will start reigning at some later time, at his second coming. The government was, of the world was put on his shoulder at the first coming. The government shall be upon his shoulder. And what's the nature of this government? Verse 7. That his, the increase of his government and his, and his peace will know no end. From the time of Christ's first coming, this verse is saying that Christ's peace has invaded planet earth and that it's increasing and increasing and it's increasing. And I think that this, this squarely contradicts that view of of world history that says, well, things are getting worse and worse and worse. Beloved, how could things be getting worse and worse and worse if this passage says that Christ's increase of his peace is increasing and increasing and increasing? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not advocating a, a, a Pollyannish view of the world. Um, I'm not saying that tomorrow is always better than the, the, the day before. That's obviously false. That's empirically false. Um, 
the transformation of the world is like our own personal sanctification. As individuals, we still sin, we still backslide, we often lose spiritual ground that we had once gained. But because Christ is our sanctifier, because he wills and works in us both to work and will according to his good pleasure, we are enabled to die more and more to sin, to live more and more to righteousness. Yes, we have spiritual highs and spiritual lows, but over the long haul, when the trajectory of the the bigger picture is counted for, there is an upward trend. Are Are you better than you were 20 years ago? As a Christian? If you're not, you're probably not a Christian. <laughs> this, is, this is something that Christ guarantees. If it's left up to us, we're going to blow it. And, and the same thing is true is happening in our world. Because the government is on um, the shoulders of King Jesus, even though there are highs and lows in world history, the overall trajectory is that Christ's government of peace is increasing. And that's not my opinion. That's what Isaiah 9 is saying. Let's turn next to Isaiah chapter 11. Now here in Isaiah 11, clearly verses 1 and 2 is clearly talking about Jesus Christ. Um, He is David's Uh, greatest son. He is the shoot that came forth from Jesse. Verse 1. It is Christ whom the Spirit of the Lord rested. Verse 2. So like chapter 9, chapter 11 is talking about the first coming of Christ into the world. And again, what we're about to see is so fantastic that some people have said, no, this has to be in the eternal state. But That can't be because verse 4 talks about opposition, active opposition that Christ is overcoming. Look at verse 4. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. That's Psalm 2 language. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. So clearly this is not describing the eternal state. Um, It's describing what will happen in this age. And here's the fantastic part. Look at verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. What's going on here? Well, the prophet is actually not talking about literal animals here. This is a metaphor. Um, Throughout other parts of scripture, these predatory animals represent wicked nations and wicked rulers. So, for instance, unrighteous princes are called wolves. In um, Ezekiel 22, wolves who kill and destroy their enemies. 
Lions and bears are compared to wicked rulers. Proverbs 28, 15. Like a roaring lion or a charging bear is a wicked ruler over a poor people. And if we look in, in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, as Daniel describes the wicked empires in world history, he describes them as animals, as a lion, as a bear, and as a leopard. So these Predatory animals that are listed here are personified in Scripture as wicked nations or rulers that devour those that are weaker than them, the, the, the lambs and the children and the, the cows. And so what Isaiah is saying here is that there's a time that is coming when these wolf-like nations, when these lion-like nations will no longer devour. The lambs will be safe, the children will be safe, the cows will be safe. Look at verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. And this is the same mountain that Daniel 2 and Isaiah 2 is talking about. It's not limited to merely the four walls of a church. He's talking about this global expanse that all the nations are streaming to. Isaiah is talking about world peace. Well, how could that ever be? End of verse 9. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Sounds too good, doesn't it? One author illustrates this verse. God one day flooded the world in judgment in the days of Noah. Now in the days of Christ, he's flooding the world with the knowledge of him in salvation. How thorough will that flooding be? Is it adequate for us to say that there's always going to be just a few converts here and a few converts there, a few righteous remnants in this city and in that, in this country and in that? No. The knowledge of the Lord is going to cover the earth in the same way that the water covers the sea. How does the water cover the sea? Does it cover the sea in little teeny puddles? A little puddle here, a little puddle there. Is that what the sea looks like? No. The water inundates the sea. And Isaiah says that this is what we should expect, that the knowledge of the Lord is going to be just that thorough. It will flood the whole world. Let's, let's turn to Isaiah 65. Starting in verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. 
Now, Pastor Josh, you're, you're way out of line now because this is obviously heaven. Verse 17 says, I created a new heavens and a new earth. That's obviously the language of the eternal state, right? No. What's happening in this passage? Let's first ask what's happening. Well, verse 20 includes birth and death. They're both described here. There's infants and there's people who died 100 years old. Do those things belong in heaven? No, they do not. Um, furthermore, we see the same language from Isaiah 11 down in verse 25 about the wolf and the lamb grazing together, the elimination of war on Christ's holy mountain. We've, those things are already expected in this age as we've already seen. So then what do we do with verse 17, which clearly says new heavens and new earth? For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. This is new creation language, Josh. Exactly. What are Christians called? A new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Or Galatians 6.15, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. This is what, what, um, what's being illustrated here is the principle of the already and not yet. Perhaps you've heard that before. Keith Matheson says here, there is an element of the new creation that is already fulfilled in the New Testament age, as well as an element that is not yet fulfilled. See, Isaiah is talking about the future of the world here when the nations will be converted, Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven. 27. Now ask yourself, if most of the world is made up of people who are called new creation, will it not be like that the world itself is like a new creation? What will it be like then? Well, Isaiah tells us, look at verse 20. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old. Now, um, some uh, all millennial brothers who interpret this passage, they'll say, well, the prophet here is using um, his limited perspective to describe things that he can't grasp at. And I think that's an honest answer, but I don't think it's a good one. Here's why. The prophet is speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's not depending upon his limited perspective. He speak, no prophecy comes from private interpretation, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Um, when, when other authors of the New Testament speak of the, the new heavens and the new earth, they don't speak um, in ways where they describe death there. No, he's talking about the future of the world. So why will lifespans be increased at this point? Well, imagine a world where there's no war. Imagine a world where the trillions of dollars that get spent on defense every year around the world are now being used to go to medicine and science and technology. Imagine a world where all the, the millions of soldiers are now employed in all the different fields, building up culture instead of killing each other. 
Imagine God's curse being lifted off of every nation, and instead, God's blessing is now reigning upon every nation. What would that world look like? Would it maybe not look like the one that we're reading? The language here is Christ is advancing and fulfilling the cultural mandate. Christ, spiritually united to his global church, is being fruitful and he's multiplying. He's filling the earth with peace and having dominion over every part of it. And the dominion continues in verses uh, 21 and 22. Everyone has a house. There is an abundance of food. Oppression has ceased. People are flourishing like trees planted by streams of water and generation after generation are blessed in the Lord. So in summary, we've seen how each of these prophecies tell a story about the success of Christ's kingdom before the second coming. Daniel 2 shows us that when Christ entered history, he struck down the kingdoms of the world and his mountain is filling and increasing. Isaiah 2 shows us that all the nations are streaming to that mountain and one day the nations will learn war no more. Isaiah 9 shows us that the government was put on Christ's shoulders and his peace has been increasing ever since. Isaiah 11 shows us that one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And Isaiah 65 shows us what the prosperity of the world will look like when Christ exercises his full dominion. So that's our doctrine. The prophets tell a story of a great future kingdom. So then let's look secondly at our duty. And it's the same one as last week. I just wanted to expand it a bit more. We have a duty to consider why eschatology or the study of last things is an important doctrine to study. Why is eschatology important to study? And we need to avoid uh, two extremes when we're talking about eschatology. The first extreme is to treat this secondary doctrine like it's a primary doctrine. What I'm teaching this morning is not a primary doctrine, it's a secondary doctrine. And secondary doctrines, by their very nature, are not as clear as primary doctrines. So, beloved, my interpretation could be wrong. I don't think it is, but it could be. I I told a brother this week, hey, look, if I'm wrong, then I'll mow your lawn in heaven for a year. (laughs) But if I'm wrong, it's because God has a better plan. The scripture says, eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. If I'm wrong, it's because there's a better plan. Better than what I've described. The second extreme that we need to avoid is simply, well, let's just ignore eschatology. After all, it's a secondary doctrine. We, you know, we shouldn't bring these things up because it might be divisive. Beloved, God put these things in the Bible. God did. All these verses that I have read to you, God wrote this. And the truth is, is that all of us, every single one of us, have some sort of vision, whether it's a finely tuned vision or an obscure vision, all of us have a vision about how this world is going to end. 
And I'm claiming that the vision that you have of the world will affect the way that you live. I grew up um, under the the premillennial assumption of the imminent return of Christ, meaning there were no more prophecies that need to be fulfilled in order for Christ to return. His return was imminent. Uh, It could happen at any moment. That's the dominant view in in evangelicalism today. Um, And in the meantime, while we're waiting for Christ to return at any moment, um, the world is getting worse and worse and worse, and there's nothing the church can do about that to change it. Now, what does that type of thinking produce in our lives? John Nelson Darby, the founder of dispensationalism, said this, quote, Instead of permitting ourselves to hope for a continued progress of the good, we must expect a progress of evil. The hope of the earth being filled with the knowledge of the Lord before the exercise of his judgment is delusive. Truly Christendom has become completely corrupted. How can it be restored? No. Impossible. Now, how did Darby um, apply that eschatology to Christian living? This is what he said. The importance of this doctrine, he says, is that it totally forbids all working for earthly objects distant in time. You hold his view, he says, and it totally forbids you working and progressing for human culture uh, for things distant in time, 50, 100, 200 years from now. Disengage from culture, they say. The only thing that you should be concerned about is warning others of the imminent return of Christ in hopes that they would convert. Now, Ian Murray, the great um, Puritan historian, chronicles Um, how this doctrine had infected 19th century um, England, how it uh, infected their church. He said this, quote, political and social labors such as marked the lives of a number of prominent Christians in the Reformation and the Puritan period and in men like William Wilberforce, the great abolitionist, was no longer regarded as legitimate evangelical activity. It's not legitimate to be pursuing righteousness in the public square or in culture. That, because of this eschatology, that is gone. Thus, men like John Calvin were attacked regularly by this group because because he wasted valuable time writing letters to secular authorities informing them of their duty to follow God's law in the civil sphere. Furthermore, Um, This this errant view of the future changed the landscape of foreign missions. Charles Hodge talks about how um, the the MO before for foreign missions was that you would go and you would aim at individual conversion. That's true. But at the same time, you would um, build Christian institutions, schools and churches that would last for generations and train up the indigenous people to run these churches. But this new view shrunk down missions to just getting the person right in front of you saved. Don't have time to work on the future. Need to work just right on this individual right now. 
Bad eschatology also affects child rearing. I've heard stories of Christian couples who lived in the States during World War II. And they decided that they weren't going to have any children. Well, why? Well, because of the call. It, wars and rumors of wars. It's the end of, we don't, we don't want to have kids at the last days. And they, they, they disobeyed the clear Christian um, command to have, um, have dominion, be fruitful, multiply in, in light of their obscure eschatology. I mean, think about that. You're cutting off your legacy because of a, a, a wrong eschatological view. Bad eschatology also affects higher education. Scores and scores of Christian parents stopped sending their kids to the university in the 70s and 80s because rapture fever had um, gripped the nation. People writing books like 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. Why send your school? Why, send, why waste the money to send your kids to university? Jesus is coming back. Now, what happens to science and education and economics when Christians retreat from the world because of bad eschatology? What happens? Look at the world today. That's what happens. We have retreated to our bunkers. Pulpits have become bunkers instead of machine guns. Is it any wonder why the world is decaying around us? What what does Jesus say that we are? Salt and light. What does salt do? It preserves um, the culture from rotting. What does light do? It leads others out of the darkness. But if the church retreats from culture, um, corruption and darkness become the norm. May I suggest to you a better way? I would argue that, and I'm not, I'm stealing this argument from others. I would argue that Western civilization has been shaped by this eschatology of dominion that I've been teaching. I 100% affirm that Jesus Christ will return. And I 100% affirm that that is the glory of the Christian and, and everything else compared to it is shadows and dust. But he has promised to um, convert the world through his gospel before he comes back. In other words, his return is contingent on prophecies being fulfilled. It's not imminent. There are things that have to take place first. I hope to continue to show that as we continue in this series. But let me give you one example. Christopher Columbus believed in the contingent return of Christ. He believed in these prophecies in Isaiah. Contrary to historical revisionism, it's, it's because of these things that we've been reading this morning that, that motivated him to set out and explore the new world. One historian says this, quote, Columbus crammed his journals... What would you cram your journals with if you were going to explore the world? Columbus crammed his journals with quotations from Isaiah and other biblical writers in which he detailed the numerous prophecies that the great commission to disciple all nations would be successful. He figured that if the Indies were to be converted, a sea route would be a much more efficient way to bring them the gospel. 
And he credited his discoveries not to the use of mathematics or maps, but to the Holy Spirit who was bringing to pass what Isaiah foretold. Oh, do you see how your eschatology can have tremendous effects on how you live in the world? Yes, it's a secondary doctrine. Absolutely. But it worms its way into everything that we do. If the church expects great things from the Lord, then we will attempt great things for him. That is the one thing that that distinguishes this view from the other views. It holds forth the belief that Christ will succeed in the Great Commission. The nations will be made his disciples. And then the end will come. So let's look finally then at our delight. Why did God create the world? Jonathan Edwards gives us this answer. God created the world to provide a spouse and a kingdom for his son. This world is Christ's world. It's not the devil's world. It's not. Yes, there's still much darkness and, and evil and suffering left, but the prophets that we, we've been reading are, are pointing towards a brighter day. The mountain of the Lord is growing. His government of his peace is increasing. One day the nations will stream to this mountain and they will learn war no more. And the earth will be filled with the knowledge of Christ as the waters cover the sea. All other kingdoms will fall, but his kingdom is the final kingdom and it never gives place to another. Well, but I would just ask you to consider what Christ has done in history to achieve this victory that I'm talking about. The Son of God became man. The Creator became creature. In order to accomplish this victory in your life and in the world, the Almighty Jehovah united himself with a body and a soul of a human being. How unthinkable. He made himself subject to the law. He undertook all the miseries of this life. He undertook the wrath of God. He undertook the cursed death on the cross. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he now sits at the right hand of God. And there he is ruling and reigning and overturning empires and shaking the nations and pouring out his spirit and accomplishing his good pleasure in the earth. Loved ones, Christ will not fail in history. And he won't fail in your life. This is one of the things that was so encouraging me to this week. Week after week, I come up here in the pulpit, and, and you, you often don't see my private life. Um, not because I, I don't want you in my private life, but there's only so many hours in a day. And I'm still full of sin. I, I've said this before. If, if you knew what I was really like, you wouldn't want me to be your pastor. And if I knew what you were really like, I wouldn't want to be your pastor. This, this vision of gospel victory 
is so encouraging because it, it reminds me that if God can do this in the world, then certainly he can do this in my life. That though I continue to fail and backslide and, 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 and regress, that he's overcoming the enemies in my life. And I would say the same thing to you, loved ones. He's loved you with an everlasting love. He's, he's held nothing back from you. He's held nothing back from you. He's washed you with his precious blood. He's clothed you with his righteousness. He made you his very own possession. And if you've taken a hold of him by faith, then you already have the victory that has overcome the world. And now you're on the winning side. What a thought that when you became a Christian, you didn't join the losing side, you joined the winning side. Don't believe that modern myth that says the church is doomed to failure. Don't believe that modern myth that says that she will not win until Jesus returns. Christ will hand the kingdom to the Father only after he has destroyed every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. Let's pray.